Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Ryan Rosenthal, joined by Holden Triplett of Trenchcoat Advisors. This is episode two of Risky Business, our mini-series in collaboration with Trenchcoat. Holden, thanks so much for joining me today. We are here to talk about our episode with Ari Redboard, who is the head of legal and government affairs at TRM Labs. Uh, Ari was a senior advisor at the Treasury Department, also served as a senior assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia for many years. Um, we wanted to, to you know, have an intro to this episode to talk about some developments since we recorded this episode. We recorded this episode uh, over a month and a half ago, and of course, a lot has happened on, on the topic in which we discussed, which is Web3 and crypto. And so, uh, Holden, thank you for joining me to have this brief little intro. Yeah, thanks very much. No, I, I think it's it's funny this space moves so quick. Uh, you know, you've got to get these things out here as quick as possible because of the all the changes that are going on. And every day, it seems like we've got a new development with a, a new business in the crypto space. Absolutely. And so, uh, this episode was recorded right after the FTX collapse, but it was before this the criminal investigations that came out um, in the Bahamas and in the United States. And so since this episode was recorded, Bahamian and U.S. authorities launched criminal investigations into FTX and its founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, also known as SBF. Uh, SBF was arrested in the Bahamas and then extradited to the United States last month. And then on January 3rd, quite recently, he pleaded not guilty to eight criminal charges, including wire fraud and conspiracy to commit money laundering, among others. And so uh, Holden, uh, a lot of, as you mentioned, can happen in this space um, in the brief time that we are not talking about it. And so I'm curious as to, one, your thoughts kind of broadly about this space, how it impacts kind of global business, and maybe any additional thoughts given to your career uh, as an FBI special agent about uh, such a, a charge like this coming up um, kind of criminally in the United States. Sure. And I, I mean, I guess it's worth mentioning, obviously, these are these are um, charges at this point. Um, there has not been a trial, so we can talk about this as alleged activity, um, but it still seems very, very serious. Um, and this obviously goes to the, the basic point that a lot of people have made about crypto, which is, is it real, right? Is it is it just one giant Ponzi scheme or is there actually something here? And we obviously get into this um, quite a bit with, with um, Ari in the, in the episode, which I think is great for kind of going through the parts that are that are real and, and the value that it does provide um, and that it is substantial. Um, but as with any new area of technology, in some ways, it's, it's like the Wild West. Um, you know, I, I did a bit um, when I was in government and have done some more since out of government um, working with um, some uh, crypto firms. And, um, you know, really, it, it's because there is such light regulation or no regulation whatsoever. Um, people are making things up as they go. And that is really like catnip for a lot of the, the, the criminal world and maybe for individuals who have, um, you know, less, uh, I guess, sort of guardrails up in their own sort of moral code or compass there to figure out um, and I'm mixing some metaphors there, but um, you know, figuring out exactly what is the the right right side of things, um, and you know, the the allegations that have made, some of the text messages that have come out since this time, it, it makes it seem like there was never anything to it, at least um, with regards to SBF. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the rest of the the industry itself, I think, um, is um, you know completely fraudulent or part of a, a Ponzi scheme. But it certainly underscores, um, you know, and, and puts a massive question mark at the end of every business that's in the in the crypto space right now. I think those are all excellent points, Holden. And a lot of these things are, are things that Ari addresses. He, he talks about that, of course, the FTX collapse, and we we didn't get the chance to mention the criminal investigation because, of course, we recorded before then. But 
Uh, Ari does mention that, you know, this is not basically damning for the entire crypto Web3 world. It does point out that there are inherent risks and that investors and government should be more wary and there should be more regulation to ensure that there are better safeguards for investors and consumers and anyone involved in this space. And so uh, basically what we do in this episode is we run through what is cryptocurrency, how it works, what are the use cases, and then some of the risks. Of course, you know, Ari, you know, works in this space. He runs, he's part of a team that runs a blockchain intelligence company. And so his day-to-day job is ensuring that uh, it is safer and, and more. there's more compliance for cryptocurrencies and for Web3. And so uh, we will certainly see what happens coming out of this, this criminal investigation. Uh, there are more firms that have been caught up uh, since uh, the FTX collapse came to light. Uh, but nonetheless, I think you know cryptocurrency, Web3 is here to stay. There are obviously use cases that can benefit both on the private side and the public side. And so uh, it, it's definitely something to pay attention to. And of course, you know, given your day job, Holden, running Trenchcoat Advisors, definitely a space that businesses need to be wary of because a lot of them are either involved already or going to get involved in, in blockchain technology. Not for sure. I think it goes back to the sort of, you know, kind of old adage at the end of the day, I mean, the technology may change and there may be different names, but human nature doesn't. And so the desire for people to take advantage of situations or if people um, in order to make money will always be there and people should be wary of that. All right, well, without further ado, we're kicking off to our conversation with Ari Redborn. Welcome back to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Ryan Rosenthal, being joined by Holden Triplett for a wonderful episode of our mini series, Risky Business in collaboration with Trenchcoat Advisors. I'm so happy today to be joined by a special guest, Ari Redborn, who is the head of legal and government affairs at TRM Labs, which is a blockchain intelligence company. Uh, before joining TRM, Ari was a senior advisor to the Deputy Secretary and Undersecretary of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence at the Treasury Department. He also served for 11 years as the Senior Assistant U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia. Ari, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Hey, no, thank you uh, so much for having me. Love the show. And uh, yeah, excited to join you. Thanks, I very much, Ari. So one of the things I think that we just want to give a little bit of background here about the, the subject matter, we're talking about blockchain or, or Web3 and crypto. It's sort of a, a almost interchangeable terms, which they do mean different things, but they often get used sort of interchangeably. Um, but I think it's, it's a really interesting topic for a number of reasons. One, it, it's a new area, a new technology. And what that typically means is that it's an area that could be ripe for a, abuse, um, has a lot of um, you know really wonderful possibilities out there. Um, but as with any new technology, it draws a whole number of characters from nation states to criminal groups, social political activists, or even uh, you know unscrupulous sort of corporate um, individuals who are operating in this space. Um, and so as this new area kind of blossoms, uh, getting intelligence, understanding how this uh, system works, the changes in there is, is really essential for all the businesses that are operating in this area. And so I think we're really pleased to be joined by uh, Ari today, who can really give us a, some great background on the area, on the, uh, the the topic, as well as the business um, that they're in and, and the, the services that they provide. Terrific. Yeah, no, really looking forward to the conversation. And and you're absolutely right. Definitions are so important here and sort of really understanding. I think one of the things we're going to be talking a lot about today is sort of the unique qualities of blockchains. 
and uh, sort of digging in a little bit, sort of, you know, it, 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 it's, you know, I think that that we sometimes overcomplicate these things. Um, but look, a blockchain is a network of decentralized computers. And really, essentially, what it is doing, it is verifying and then logging every transaction on an immutable, meaning unchangeable or forever public ledger. It allows for better record keeping, essentially, through this decentralized network than we've really ever had before. And really, crypto is the first use case for this technology, if you will. It's essentially digital money uh, where transactions are logged on this immutable public ledger. Uh, but there are so many other use cases from you know NFTs to sort of other, other types of, uh, of technology, and we can get into some of that today. But really, I think for purposes of this, really understanding blockchains as, as this immutable public ledger where we can log and validate different transactions uh, to to allow for sort of more variability and, and visibility than we've really ever had before. Eric, that was probably the clearest uh, explanation of blockchain and crypto that I've ever had. And I wow, been, I don't know about that, but I'll take it. <laughs> so, well, thank you for that kind of basis for our understanding for ourselves and our listeners. And so, uh, now that we know what crypto is, what uh, what blockchain is, I'd love for you to kind of help us understand the private sector benefits and maybe more about the use cases of cryptocurrencies, because of course people know that you can buy things with crypto, but what are the kind of broader applications of blockchain and how is crypto being used used in the private market today? Sure. Look, I, I think the promise of cryptocurrency and really blockchains is the ability to transfer value cross-border at the speed of the internet. Um, and, and you do it um, outside of traditional intermediaries, right, that have slowed down the process, that have taken fees and made it more expensive. So it's a way to move funds across borders to reach people that, frankly, the traditional financial system hasn't always reached, whether they're sort of unbanked parts of the world, whether it's remittances, whether it's to send funds to places like Ukraine to fund humanitarian aid uh, and military, um, or to send to distance, really, you know, across the globe. So it's really this, I think the promise of this technology, you know, this permissionless, decentralized um, you know, immutable public ledger where, where where crypto lives and moves really allows for us to move funds faster uh, than, than ever before. Uh, but 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 not to sort of get too far ahead of ourselves. But the same qualities that make crypto such a force for good, right? Cross border value transfer at the speed of the internet also make it very attractive to illicit actors who want to move large amounts of fund funds fast across the internet. And that's what. I was focused on when I was in the federal government for many years, and, and that's what we're focused on at TRM, essentially stopping bad actors from taking advantage of this extraordinary technology. Eric, you brought up a couple of good points I think are worth drilling down on just a little bit. You talk about this immutable ledger, um, and, and really, I think it's, it, it is a kind of revolutionary technology when you think about um, the current state of the, the banking system and how uh, information is transferred. But maybe it's worth talking about that just a little bit more to give um, to the listeners an idea of, of what the state of it is. I think most people think of you know the rise of the internet, the ease of communication and how quick and easy it is to, to talk to and touch and transfer information to anyone in the world. That isn't always the case on the traditional banking side, which is what it seems like in, in many ways, blockchain, the, the problem that it's trying to solve. But if you could talk about that a little bit, I think that'd be helpful. Yeah, no, I think that absolutely. And look, I, you have the traditional financial system um, that is very much you know at work today, and, and there are huge benefits to it, right? Um, but you, you have large traditional financial institutions. And really, the, the way our system has always worked is those large traditional financial system, those intermediaries are responsible to a regulator. And we can get more into sort of that in, in a moment. You have Web2, 
which is now referred to as Web two in the in the age of Web three or or, or or blockchains. But essentially, Web two is still based on that same model. You know, the the, the information that essentially I think the promise was that it was going to be you know, decentralized and, and people are going to have access to it. It's still controlled by essentially intermediaries, right? Think the big social media companies. And um, what 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 blockchain solves is this idea of, of being totally reliant on this intermediate on these intermediaries. And what crypto solves is is essentially being reliant on these intermediaries in the financial sense. So sort of like you know, as I said earlier, it really allows us to move funds outside of these sort of siloed traditional financial system that relies on intermediaries where look i mean at the end of the day if i want to send funds to holden or ryan or anyone else i can do that directly peer to peer without sort of you know intermediaries slowing it down or or taking fees and there's i think there's a real revolutionary aspect in that it's absolutely revolutionary ari uh, but with that you have the public sector that you know has had some involvement also maybe criticisms of that. And so I'm curious how, as someone who's come from government, who knows the intricacies of regulation, how has the public sector used crypto? Are, are there wide applications that the public sector is using right now? Or is it still, are they still a bit hesitant to jump into the world of Web3? You know, it's interesting. I mean, I think right now what we're seeing really is every regulator in the world at some place within their crypto journey. You know, uh, how are we going to regulate this technology to um, ensure that it's safe and ensure that it's responsible, but at the same time, not stifle innovation? And, you know, you could do, you know, you look around the world and you have everyone from, you know, the Monetary Authority of Singapore to um, Dubai, which actually has the only um, crypto only regulator in the world, the Virtual Asset Regulatory Authority, VARA. You now have a White House framework, an executive branch framework in the U.S. for digital assets, which you know no U.S. president really had ever spoken in a meaningful way about crypto, and now we have an executive order and a framework around it. Right? Um, you have uh, the EU with really the first ever um, regulatory framework, uh, comprehensive framework for cryptocurrency, the Markets and Crypto Assets uh, Regulation. Uh, the UK has has regulations and proposals out there. So regulators globally. Are trying to figure out, all right, how do we regulate the technology? And and I would I would argue that those qualities of blockchain that we started out discussing, decentralized, permissionless, um, actually allow regulators more visibility on financial flows than they've ever had before using tools like TRM. And there's this sort of I think there's this falsehood in in the space that like you know crypto is uh, you know great for money laundering, and the reality is that regulators, and we can talk about this more in a moment in the national security context, and law enforcement now can track and trace funds um, you know, uh, you know, across blockchains and across borders in ways that were really impossible in traditional finance. So when you talk about sort of what is the use case today from government, it's investigative, it's, it's regulatory, meaning sort of supervisory, used as a licensing, part of the licensing process, and really, you know, really so many other ways um, and I know this is your jam, but like, you know, the national security space um, has has really started to use these tools also in, in really innovative ways. So I, I think the, the public sector use case is very, very real. And I'm hopeful that we'll move from the conversation of how do we squeeze crypto into the regulatory frameworks we have today to, hey, we really need to harness the power of this technology in order to regulate in the space. So there's a couple things in there. I, I think just it'd be great to, to pull apart. One, 
you talked about the the idea of a, you know, no intermediary, right? That the blockchain allows you to have a relationship, be it transferring information or transferring, um, you know, it could be currency if you're using crypto um, and, and do that without an intermediary. Um, but that intermediary in some ways, that, that, that bottleneck that used to be the bank, that was the regulated entity in the past, right? That's where all the regulation was focused. And so you've talked about, obviously, it looks like there's a lot of work in this area where the, where the public sector's struggling, working through, trying to figure out how best to regulate this and what's the right kind of point at which to do that regulation. Um, but then a big piece of that seems also to be because it is a this kind of vast decentralized network, no one really fully understands what's going on. So the intelligence aspect comes in there. So could you, could you talk a little bit about this, sort of the interplay, especially of a, of a company like yours, where you're providing that intelligence um, of what's going on on the blockchain or on multiple blockchains, rather, um, and how that intersects with the sort of regulatory environment that's arising throughout the world. It seems like there's a multiple potentially competing ones that are that are going on. Yeah, no, I, Holden, I think you, I mean, this is exactly where the rubber meets the road today when you're talking about regulation in the space. And that is, look, um, our, our regulatory, and this is true globally, but we can talk about the US, right? The Bank Secrecy Act framework has always been based on this idea where you have a siloed financial institution, right? A Bank of America, Wells Fargo, a city who basically provides suspicious activity reports, SARS, to their financial regulator, so FinCEN in that case. And the only people that ever see those uh, those reports are uh, the, the bank and FinCEN and maybe law enforcement if it sort of reaches that level and they go investigate it. But really, crypto changes that because crypto allows for FinCEN, the regulator, to have real-time visibilities on their entire regulated ecosystem. Uh, meaning that they don't need to rely on those siloed SARS anymore, but they actually have visibility. And, and this is what we do at TRM, essentially. We provide data to law enforcement, to regulators, to financial institutions and crypto businesses to allow them to make those determinations to say, hey, look, you know, that's too much exposure to illicit activity to license that uh, crypto business. Or we need to follow the funds because there was just a hack or a ransomware attack and they use our tool to trace and track the funds. That was just impossible in the traditional financial system. So look, it's important to regulate intermediaries, and I understand why regulators want to. A, they've always done it, and B, in some respects, it's easier, right? Like to rely on an intermediary as opposed to have to regulate the entire ecosystem yourself. But I think the reality is that the technology really enables regulators to have more real-time visibility and potentially actually more power to regulate the space, um, and, and, and I'm excited about it. I, I think there's a there's a lot more to say on that topic, and I'm happy to sort of throw out some examples as we as we dig into the national security piece a little bit. Absolutely, I'd love to kind of first dig into some more about the regulatory kind of regime in place, uh, because there's been a lot of calls both on Capitol Hill, but also within the Web three community for better regulation or more regulation. And so I'm curious how you think that the regulatory re regime will play out. Are we going to build upon current regulations in place? Or does a new set of regulations need to be stood up in order to kind of accommodate this new technology that's been developed? I, look, I, th I think like anything else, you know, I'm a realist first. And I think that what we'll do is for a while, at least we'll use the frameworks that kind of exist and try to regulate the crypto space that way. And it's very doable when you're talking about sort of centralized cryptocurrency exchanges, you know, in the wake of FTX, there's a lot of sort of questions in the world around, hey, this space needs better regulation or more regulation. And the reality is this is a space that needs more regulatory clarity, to be sure. And I think most businesses out there will tell you that it's more about clarity than even the words um, in terms of what the regulations say. 
Um, but I will say that, look, FTX was a centralized financial institution that happened to be offering crypto assets to customers. And so many of the regulations today around consumer protection, investor protection, frankly, I was a prosecutor for 11 years at DOJ about fraud, um, you know, civil and criminal that apply to the conduct by an FTX potentially um, that, that already exist. And I think the more interesting piece of all of this is when we move beyond the sort of centralized crypto ecosystem to the real promise of that technology, right? The truly decentralized DeFi, you know, how people are transacting directly on blockchains, you know, with uh, financial services, with each other peer to peer that actually probably present more regulatory challenges, but also more promise when it comes to the technology. So uh, hopefully that was helpful. But I, I do think that like there are two pieces to this. We could probably figure out how to force the FTXs of the world those centralized exchanges into the current regime. I do think it's going to change a lot when regulators really get out there starting to think about how to regulate more better in a in a truly decentralized space. And I will say just before I finish, you know, and and globally, that's where regulators are headed. You know, it's interesting. I'd say in the last maybe three years, four years, there's been a real focus on how to regulate sort of the centralized crypto space, right? What should we do about all these you know what 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 the financial action task force fatifs calls vasps virtual asset service providers what should we do about those those are really mostly exchanges how do we deal with the travel rule you know what should, should they send to the next financial institution in a transaction in terms of know your customer you know what should we do about unhosted wallets what i'm hearing from regulators globally is that the next frontier is all right we figured out centralization how do we regulate in a world in which people are actually transacting more and more on blockchains in a decentralized way? That's where we're headed. Um, the White House uh, framework for, for crypto uh, is like hundreds of pages of responses from executive branch agencies, which like I don't think I slept for about a month um, when, when that came out. And it all came out like on one day. Um, but you know, one of the things that it doesn't address necessarily are, are DeFi and NFTs. And the actual, uh, the, the, the framework itself tasks Treasury with providing risk assessments in the next eight months or so on those two categories. So I feel like, all right, we're, we're good set in the centralized space, but now we're moving to that DeFi NFT space and, and, and we'll see where regulators land on this. That brings us to a kind of a, a question, I think, about where we are right now. And I, I think at heart, as you explained, you know these are these are tools. These are are uh, methods in order to exchange information, currency, that type of thing. They're not inherently good or bad, but the market clearly is is still developing. The regulatory market, and and so I, I just gonna ask you to put on your prosecutor hat at this point. Are we in a place now where the digital currencies maybe pose more of a threat than a, a solution to us? Something that you know really DOJ needs to put some significant resources on. The government writ large needs to to clean it up. Um, as they're developing a regulatory market. So um, it seems like there's been a, as these things come, it's fits and starts, you know, there's sort of great movement by the market, government moves to kind of catch up with a regulatory environment, but we've, we may have kind of gotten a little bit in front, you know, over our skis at this point. Do you think there's a, it's, they're posing a threat to the, the financial system? Yeah, no, it's, it's a fair question. I think, look, I mean, we're still talking about a very nascent industry. You know, even Janet Yellen, you know, uh, the treasury secretary has come out in the wake of FTX and, in every comment she's made, she's reiterated that, look, this is just too small to have true systemic effect 
on the larger financial system. And I think that's still true today. It was true when Terra collapsed, the stablecoin, several months ago over the summer. Um, and I think it is, it's certainly still, still true to say. But regulators are always looking to that future state where that might not be true. And I think that's where you see some regulation. And um, you know, stable coins are a great example. Um, and you see you know, regulation coming out of the UK uh, that talks about how to deal with a failed stablecoin project. Probably the closest thing to actual uh, becoming law in the US is a stablecoin bill. Um, hopefully coming out in the next Congress. We'll see. We thought it was going to come out in the last Congress or in this Congress. Um, but I, I think if we're, we're, we're likely not to see some sort of large framework just based on the political environment in the US today. But I'm hopeful that there'll be pieces. And one of those pieces will be stable coins. One of those pieces will address some of these issues around commingling of funds and some of the stuff that came out in FTX. Um, but just but just go back to sort of, you know, I guess is 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 this a, a real problem that should be being addressed? And I would say financial crime is a true problem in the traditional in the traditional financial system and in crypto. And look, I mean, I think that there's general consensus that it's under three percent in crypto. It's a, a, a overall illicit volume. It's under it's around three percent in the traditional financial system. So this we're we're talking relatively similarly. That and that's the most. Those are the most conservative estimates. In in crypto, so I think the, I think the reality is that like financial crime is bad. Uh, there is more visibility on financial flows in crypto than we've ever had before, and I think the government is taking it very very seriously. If you look around federal law enforcement, you know you have IRSCI, the criminal investigations that's led some of the largest crypto investigations. Um, you have FBI has now a virtual asset unit. DOJ, the Department of Justice, has a national cryptocurrency enforcement team. Um, you know, I can tell you Secret Service, Homeland Security Investigations, DEA, all have squads that are just focused on tracking and tracing cryptocurrency using tools like TRM to stop bad actors. So I think that like on the one hand, we got to stop money laundering, right? You, that's, you know, but but um, on the other hand, I think sound, clear regulation is is a pretty good combo uh, for success here. So Ari, I'm, I'm curious when you look at Web3 as a domain of risk, obviously anytime a new technology comes forward, there are national security risks and also opportunities for the government to increase their ability to investigate or ensure compliance. Uh, but when we think about Web3, do you see it as being any in, in any manner fundamentally different as a, as a domain of risk? Is decentralization, maybe some of the anonymity components maybe increasing the risks where sometimes the benefits maybe don't necessarily catch up yet. Yeah, look, I, I think that there, there are some risks that are very, very similar in crypto and in the traditional financial system. And I think there are some risks and challenges that are very, very different. You know, when I was a prosecutor, I used to investigate, you know, cases involving bulk cash smuggling and networks of hawalas and shell companies and high value art and like Russian real estate in London. You know, I, I can tell you there's no TRM for those things, right? Like you, it, it is very hard to track and trace a Van Gogh. Um, but, but the reality is like in crypto, even financial crime allows us to track and trace transactions in ways that were impossible and really provides more visibility um, on those financial flows. And uh, it's, it's helped law enforcement investigate cases uh, and it's helped regulators and also the national security space. Um, you know, I think one thing that's also really interesting is you talk about anonymity, and, and certainly um, there are all kinds of tools within the crypto space, right? Um, mixing services that, that mix up assets on chain and 
and obfuscate those transactions. There are privacy coins. And those are things that are really important for uh, financial crime investigators to be able to trace and track through. But they're also really important for people who want some degree of privacy in a more and more open financial system. Um, you know, right? Like all, if someone knows your crypto address, they will essentially be able to see how you spend your money. You know, whether it's your employer, um, you know, frankly, if you're someone who is a .eth address on Twitter or whatever, like I can, you know, in a, in a, you know, in a crypto world, I can tell you where you buy your shoes, right? Like, uh, you, you know, we want more privacy. So I think these things are very, very important. Um, the privacy enhancing tools, um, but we have to stop bad actors from using them. And, and the reality is that North Korea, you know, for example, has used mixers at scale to move million, uh, to use, to move billions of dollars. So on the one hand, we have to stop the North Koreas of the world, the cyber criminals, uh, you know, and others, but at the same time, enable, you know, Holden to have some level of, of privacy in a more and more open financial system. I, I could definitely use more privacy in my, my financial networking. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I, I don't, in, in all seriousness, so on this, I, I think this is a, a, a kind of a great transition to thinking about some of the other threats that, that in some ways seem to be unique. I mean, I, the, you mentioned North Korea and, and in some ways they're sort of like the, the modern day bank robbers, you know, be it Bank of Bangladesh or or other cases where they've, where they've essentially, you know, ripped off a huge amount of money on, on, um, from from banks. But it almost appears as if the the blockchain at the current level that it's at, which is still sort of nascent in both in terms of technology, but also in some of the regulatory, um, and, and obviously in the long run, it can provide um, sort of greater um, sort of ability to understand transactions. But right now, it seems like that at least it's drawing a, a fairly, um, well, nefarious set of a crowd, right? And individuals who are looking to evade sanctions, right? The ability for the US and maybe others to kind of control some of the movements of money. Certainly that's, you know, you think of like uh, the uh, North Koreans or the Iranians or the Russians, and maybe down in the future, maybe we've, if we have, you know, increased tensions with with China or these sort of ability to move money and uh, carry out transactions outside the US regulatory network, what sort of national security kind of concerns do you see in this space, specifically from the US side? Yeah, look, I, I think these are sort of the existential questions in the space that really keep me up at night. Obviously, we're pretty focused on fraud and financial crime and, and not to minimize that at all. But but as a former national security prosecutor for many years, um, you know, when I see North Korea steal billions of dollars at the speed of the Internet, I know it's going to be used to fund weapons proliferation and ballistic missiles and destabilizing activity. And there's no place for that in the world. Um, but I think what's what's really interesting sort of in the crypto space is on the one hand, um, you know, in the age of the Internet, a hack by North Korea or anyone else meant the loss of usernames and passwords. Right. In the age of crypto. It's like you described, bank robbery at the speed of the internet. And those funds can be used directly to fund weapons. Um, and that, to me, is, is, a, is a real problem. However, it's really hard to move large amounts of funds on blockchains and off-ramp those amounts. And when I say off-ramp, the reality is that today, crypto cannot really be used in a meaningful way to buy things. So you're really looking for off-ramps to fiat. And if you look at sort of North, North Korea's largest hacks, they have struggled off-ramping large amounts of funds. Um, and I think that, and, and that's been true of money laundering on blockchains for, for, for other um, bad actors as well. Um, I think the other sort of interesting piece to all of this is that regulators are using tools also on chain to attempt to stop uh, or mitigate the risk 
of North Korea and other cyber criminals. Um, you know, for example, um, North Korea hacked the Ronin Bridge, which is basically a, a on-chain bridge that moves funds from Ethereum to the Ronin blockchain, which is part of the Axi, uh, play-to-earn game Axie Infinity. And it was really a watershed moment in, in my mind in sort of this space because North Korea had been hacking crypto businesses for you know several years, but they stole $625 million in this hack. And I think that it really moved um, moved the issue from a law enforcement issue, you know, FBI, HSI, to a um, to a national security issue. You have the National Security Council involved. You have the Treasury Department involved. But the reaction was really interesting. They used tools like TRM or Treasury used tools like TRM to start to track and trace those funds. And then they started to use sanctions. So, for example, the first ever crypto address that was sanctioned as part of sort of the Lazarus Group or North Korea set of designations was the address where the funds moved off the Ronin Bridge. And then OFAC in real time continued to track and trace the flow of funds and designated three more cryptocurrency addresses. They then watched them go through a centralized mixing service called Blender.io on the Bitcoin blockchain, designated that, right? Sanctioned that, added it to the SDN list. And then finally, uh, they designated a decentralized mixing protocol called, called Tornado Cash that resulted in a lot of sort of questions around privacy and security and all these things. But I say all of that to say that like, you know, this is an only in crypto story. You know, I was a treasury for a couple of years and I can tell you that like, you needed DOJ legal, uh, you know, approval. You needed, you know, potentially weeks or months of discussions around targeting and designations. And what you're seeing is they're using the qualities of blockchain and tools to really designate in almost real time. And I think it's this combo of yeah, bad actors can take advantage of, of blockchains to move funds in large amounts, but regulators are also using tools as well. So glad you brought up sanctions, Ari, because I think it's a very interesting aspect to this when, of course, Russia kind of first in reinvaded Ukraine, there were questions as far as would they use blockchain and cryptocurrencies to maybe move funds. Uh, but it sounds like what you're saying is that they've, you know, the United States government, other governments have worked with companies like TRM or other, you know, types of blockchain intelligence companies to ensure that countries can evade sanctions. And so is it, the, are we at a state where governments can work either within their own kind of systems or with private companies to have kind of sanctions enforcement through blockchain. Is that where we're at? I think that's right. Um but but again, like make no mistake, you know, I'm a, I'm a prosecutor uh you know by 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 background and and the reality is that like Russian oligarchs, sanctioned Russian individuals, of course they're going to use cryptocurrency to try to evade sanctions. And how do we know that? Because they use everything to try to evade sanctions. You know, there was a great report uh out of the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations in the US Senate that does great work. Um, maybe five, four or five years ago on the use of high value art by Russian oligarchs to evade sanctions, which was at the time sort of like Crimea and then ultimately Russian election interference uh, pre, pre-invasion of Ukraine. But the reality is like, you know, real estate, they're going to use everything. So at a smaller scale, uh, of course, we're going to see that inevitably. Um, but the reality is that like, there's not enough crypto, you know, in the entire world, there's not enough liquidity anywhere to actually sort of you know fund the G20 economy and this war that is being waged in in Ukraine. So I think we're going to see it in sort of smaller amounts and then um you know to your question you know what is what is OFAC what is treasury doing 
And what they're doing is saying, hey, where are the potential off-ramps where Russian oligarchs and others will try to convert crypto to traditional currencies? And what they've done is actually, to date, they've they've designated, sanctioned three cryptocurrency businesses, all Russia-based, uh, one called Suex, one called Chadex, and one called Garantex. And those are non-compliant exchanges that have no controls in place that allow you know, ransomware, sanctions, all kinds of different um, illicit activity to flow through. So like on the one hand, it's inevitable, right? Like Russian oligarchs are going to use this. Uh, but but I think that like Treasury in particular is targeting that piece of the ecosystem, right? Darknet markets like Hydra, um, you know, uh, th- those non-compliant exchanges that I that I mentioned, mixers, right? They're tra- they're targeting those places where they think those cyber criminals and others will try to move and off-ramp funds. Russian oligarchs are uh, always on the cutting edge of uh, financial fraud, right? Continue to push the envelope there. <laughs> well, I, I, just a question on the on the, the sanctions of that. I, I mean, I, obviously, that a move that I think we would all applaud is they they tried to clamp down on that. But as you see, almost sort of a you know the world kind of starting to cleave into to different. Um, sectors, even the financial sector, what are the, are the sanctions having less of an effect in some way, would you think? Or do you think they're still having as, as much of an impact as we would hope, um, you know, especially the, like the three Russian um, exchanges that you mentioned? Yeah, I mean, this is this is like a classic question around sort of what are the impact of sanctions? And it's, it's much less a sort of crypto question than like, this is something that has been discussed for years as, as sanctions have become really the go-to tool of US foreign policy, right? If you want any non-kinetic response, it, it tends to be to be sanctions. Um, and, and I think the reality is they, they are still as strong as ever. And I'm sure they'll be dis- I, I'm sure that you'll get to disagreement on this point. Um, but I think that the hegemony of the US dollar as the global reserve currency still really makes our sanctions very, very effective. I think the question really becomes, is there a world where that becomes less and less true? Because of alternative payment mechanisms, right? The WePays and the AliPays, the um, you know a, a, a central bank digital currency in China, um, or or even cryptocurrency, right? Are there ways to move funds outside the U.S. financial system? Uh, it, it, there's no question; it's an, a super important issue. I testified recently before the House Financial Services Committee on exactly this, and I think the consensus is that there's a future state, you know, where. The U.S. dollar is is not the reserve currency of the world, or less of the reserve currency of the world. How do we know that? Because it's happened in every civilization, right? In 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 human history. But today, the dollar is stronger than ever. I think we're seeing um, the most sophisticated and robust sanctions program that we've ever seen in the context of Russia, Ukraine. Um, I can tell you, you know, it took years to ramp up places like Iran, North Korea, Syria, Venezuela, Sudan. Um, to the point it got within six weeks, right, of of the invasion. So I think that like we're seeing the impact there, we're seeing the effect. Um, but the real question is like, is there a future state where this becomes less and less true? And I think the answer is yes. And we have to plan for that future state. Um, and um, you know, part of what what I think makes sense is ensuring that we have tools to enforce our sanctions, right, to stop bad guys, um, and and to use the qualities of blockchain to to do that. Um, I think, you know, I look around the space and people talk like about a central bank digital currency, but you also see 99% of fiat-backed stable coins are US dollar denominated. I mean, to me, you know, those aren't US dollars. I get that. But wow, you talk about like, you know, exporting 
U.S. values and U.S. democratic principles and even the power of our sanctions through a private means, it's pretty extraordinary if you think about it. It's incredibly interesting. And uh, I think with that, the effectiveness of the U.S. foreign policy toolkit is only enhanced by cooperation on the world stage. And so what does that cooperation look like? Of course, the U.S. is getting more and more involved in looking at the crypto space, but how engaged is the United States and other countries in looking at regulations and cooperation? It is so important. And I, I, anyone you talk to regulator globally, I, I had a, I do a, a show called TRM Talks and I had some uh, officials from the Monetary Authority of Singapore. And uh, one of the guests made a great point. She said, look, we can do everything there is to do, but we're only as strong as our weakest link. And the reality is that, you know, this issue of jurisdictional arbitrage, where you have some, you know, some jurisdictions like the US, like the UK, like the EU, like Singapore, that are, you know, rigorously enforcing, you know, standards and 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 uh, and regulation. And then you have others like Russia and, um, you know, many, many countries out there that are not. And the reality is that bad guys uh, are going to set up shop in those places that they're going to select to go there. And I think that's that's some that's so that's why if you talk to the Financial Action Task Force, FATF, um, which is really the, the UN and money laundering, the global standard setting body, um, they basically say they have three priorities. It's implementation of standards, implementation of standards, implementation of standards, because they want those, they want their principles to be everywhere in the world to ensure we don't have this sort of jurisdictional arbitrage. But it is absolutely key. And that's just it from a regulatory perspective, right? Uh, you know, there's law enforcement cooperation becomes so important because, you know, crypto and blockchains allow for this cross-border value transfer um, of of larger amounts faster. And um, you need that kind of international law enforcement cooperation as well. But it's so important. If you look at the White House executive order, and, and I might be slightly misstating this, but I think there were at least two, maybe three reports done just on this issue alone. I know one from DOJ. I know one from Treasury on what what should we be doing in the international cooperation piece? Because it's just it's it's the nature of crypto. I mean, I'm not naive enough to think we're going to end up with like global regulation in the space to sort of deal with the global, you know, the nature of of the technology. But I think that if you have a framework in the UK, in the EU, um, you know, important players in in APAC, uh, and, and certainly in the United States, I think you start to get more towards the framework. Um, that 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 we're talking about, even if it's in sort of disparate pieces. On that point, Ari, you, you kind of look at the big four of you know the, as Intel Intel community reversing as you know the China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, who probably are not quite on board with doing a whole lot of uh, international cooperation in this area. What else are you all seeing, especially at TRM? That as much as you can share, are there? Do you see sort of a you know another set of countries that are maybe not quite as prolific as looking to sort of, you know, pull the rug out from, um, you know, U.S. dominance, um, you know, kind of in the financial sector um, and the financial system at large. Uh, are there other nation states that we sort of should be watching in terms of jurisdictions that, um, you know, may have been less problematic, but might be problematic in the future? And then just uh, kind of a, it almost seems a little bit antiquated to talk about now, but talking about, um, you know, non-state actors and sort of the, the in the, in the, you know, the um, terrorist world, is this still kind of a concern that we have in the gray zone that it's being used um, to potentially do all sorts of nefarious activities? Yeah, no, uh, there's a bit to unpack there. I'll come back to the non-state actor piece because I actually think it, the answer is yes, and it's important. Um, but in terms of the countries, I think you mostly have it right. 
Um, you know, especially when you're talking about like these real existential threats that that we sort of got into. And I think you see each of those places doing something, right? North Korea has professionalized hacking um, and cyber criminal activity. Um, people ask me all the time, like, so who else is doing this like North Korea? And my answer is usually no one, right? Like they have raised, you know, kids from young ages to be cyber criminals. Um, and it's really extraordinary to see the effect that it has. Uh, essentially, we're talking about a banana republic that can use, you know, $625 million to buy funds, uh, buy weapons is, is a real problem. So, so you have that piece, uh, you clearly have Russia, um, trying to figure out how to evade sanctions, um, how to create their own domestic payment systems. Um, you see China developing its own central bank digital currency clearly for the purpose of exporting that technology eventually, and at least challenging in some way or another, you know, dollar hegemony uh, in the world. And then you see Iran really, I think, again, like a much smaller player in all of this, but, you know, um, legalizing um, the use of crypto for international payments, right? Meaning sort of in international trade, they can use crypto, meaning that they can work outside the this work outside sanctions, work outside the U.S. financial system. So I think you, you have pretty much nailed um, the, the, the group there. And certainly there are countries all over the world that have, you know, much weaker or no regulation, but it, it's potentially less nefarious, more just not having the resources, not having the, the, the frankly, the infrastructure. Um, on your non-state actors, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that the scariest thing always, you know, I was a national security prosecutor, you know, post 9-11, um, which really sort of shaped my view of all of this. And um, it doesn't take much. Uh, you know, this is not Russia sanctions we're talking about here. You don't need to run a G20 economy overnight with crypto. You just need to, you know, you just need 5,000 bucks to, um, you know, to fund a small attack, right? That's the nature of terrorism. And that's why it, it, it scares me. Just the ability to move funds quickly um, is something that we spend a lot of time about. We have an entire team at TRM of, you know, former FBI analysts and others who are dedicated to just that issue, right? Counterterrorism. Um, and it's not just, um, international terrorism groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS and others, it's also domestic terrorism and sort of, um, you know, right-wing extremist groups. So um, it's it's an important issue. And I think the reason it's not antiquated at all is you don't need large amounts of funds. Um, and it, it becomes scarier and scarier. We recently um, issued a report at TRM talking about the use of NFTs for, um, for terrorist propaganda, um, not linked directly to um, Al-Qaeda or ISIS, but to a supporter who is starting to dabble with this technology. So, you know, not antiquated at all. It's something that we definitely spend a lot of time thinking about. So, Ari, this naturally brings up the question, how do we stay safe? From at least the first the government perspective, how does the government shore up its capabilities to combat both nation state and non-state actors who are trying to engage in illicit activities? I, I think in all the ways we've been talking about today, which is which has been an awesome conversation. So I think one, we need law enforcement to have the tools and the training that they need in this space um, to be able to track and trace um, the flow of funds and really be able to kind of understand and have that crypto expertise. Global cooperation is critical. Um, and it's not just in crypto either, right? Like, I think that's something that's forgotten a lot of this. You talk about these hacks and they happen to be on cryptocurrency businesses. But the reality is these are th this is a cyber issue. Uh, even more than it is a crypto issue. So we need public-private, we need global cooperation around cybersecurity, 
right? All these businesses need to harden their cybersecurity, whether we're talking about ransomware or hacks. Um, so I think the, 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 the global cooperation, public-private partnerships, ensuring that law enforcement, um, you know, have have the tools that they need to track and trace the flow of funds, um, and really and really the expertise. Um, so I think there are so many things, and that's just on the sort of like big big piece, right? We also all need to be smarter. I I certainly do on my own opsec, right? Like we need to make sure when we're in this space, when we're on social media, when we're on an exchange, that we're making sure that we're we're doing everything that we can to stay safe. Um, whether that means the way we handle cryptocurrency, that means the way we transfer it. Um, so I think there's lot there's lots of things that we could potentially do. Um, but yeah, from a national security perspective, I think it's just so critical to have the tools um, and and the training and the expertise. And you see there, you see it. I mean, it's pretty amazing when you see what IRSCI, for example, has done the last two years or, or three years in these big investigations, whether it's Bitfinex or some of the terrorist financing cases or or um, or Ronin, um, same with FBI, HSI, and others. Harry, one of the focuses of what we're doing with this small series is really this intersection between national security and business, which is a lot of what we've been talking about today. There's certainly a lot of interaction. But I want to kind of take this a little bit to a, to a personal level. You really, you were a prosecutor, and so you were part of the national security apparatus. Um, but you've now moved to the private sector. But there's a lot of overlap. Do, do you feel like in many ways you're, you're able to continue the national security mission? Do you see private sector as having a kind of an important role to play in this? Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate the question and, and, and the way you asked it for sure. Like, yeah, I, I've had the coolest law jobs that you could ever have. Uh, you know, I was in AUSA. I got to walk into court every day and say, Ari Redboard for the United States. Like, and that will always be the greatest honor of my life. I got to work with just crazy teams from FinCEN and OFAC and the intelligence community at Treasury. Um, but I tell people I have the coolest job that I've ever had now because basically I get to stay on that same mission, right? Stop bad actors from taking advantage of the financial system. But I get to do it at a really cool startup uh, with with people who are all super mission driven um, to to support law enforcement, to support regulators, but also to build a company. Um, and it's been a really really awesome experience. But I I will say that it's definitely the the thing I'm most proud of outside of my own family today is like building this team of people who share that that vision. The Christian Cheskys from IRSCI, the Kyle Armstrongs. Um, Rita Martins, like these people who came from in, in that order, IRSCI, FBI, Secret Service, who are all kind of like, wow, I get to still um, stop bad guys, but I also get to teach others how to do it and provide the tools and stay on that mission to build a safer financial system. And it's, uh, yeah, it's it, it, it's pretty cool. It's why I don't sleep anymore either. Um, and, uh, but it is, uh, it's pretty awesome. Well, I definitely recommend everyone follow Ari on social media. Cause you get to see where in the world Ari is and it's always somewhere <laughs> different. Um, it's been fun. I am in DC right now, thankfully, which is really nice. Um, so Ari, I want to close out today's conversation by talking about the future. Uh, obviously given the recent events, there is significant crypto skepticism. Uh, there are all, of course, huge proponents of it. Um, but at, at some point, there's you know a reckoning, and if it's not now, it will be very soon. And so, how can the public and private sectors work together to increase trust and make crypto a bit more mainstream? Like, what is um, the next step in the kind of crypto landscape as we move forward? So, what recent events? No, I, I, I'm just kidding. Uh, look, I, I think that uh, I, I think that there is. This is actually. I, I'm very positive, and I, I'm looking for sort of what is the right answer to a lot of what's going on in the wake of FTX. And, and to me, part of the answer is that, look, you've you got to focus on the business uh, and, and not the technology, right? Like, I think when we're talking about FTX, it was essentially a centralized financial institution that had 
you know, the same governance problems, um, you know, and, and commingling of client funds and potential fraud that has been an issue of traditional financial institutions for, for some time, you know, thinking back in, in even recent history to Bear Stearns and Lehman and other places. And then I think what I really focus on is the technology, right? The technology that we talked about really from the very beginning of our conversation today, you know, the unique qualities of blockchains, permissionless, permanent, uh, decentralized, um, that allow for funds to move um, faster peer-to-peer in ways that we never could before. FTX did not harness the power of that technology, right? Like uh, it, it was something very, very different. And I'm hoping that we do start a conversation now about how do how do we really move more to a peer-to-peer decentralized world, but do it safely. I'm certainly not sort of you know of this camp that it, this is it should be entirely libertarian. You know, this has got to be controlled, and we have to have regulatory frameworks in place. But we also need to really enable people to leverage the power of the technology to move funds quicker cross-border. Um, and 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 I'm excited for that moment. I'm hoping that what happens today is going to sort of move us more towards conversations around how do we do that responsibly, as opposed to sort of the real focus on FTX and sort of conflating it with crypto, which I do think it's it, they're pretty pretty different. FTX, there's no question, was a crypto business, but I think that was the only thing that was sort of you know that that really was part of the, the technology itself. That's great. And it kind of leads us into the very last piece here. Just to get some advice from you, what would, what would you tell the you know, business leaders today who are thinking about this, especially the kind of the intersection of, you know, um, national security in business or like, you know, criminal activity in business with financial fraud? What should they be thinking about? What should they be worried about sort of in the over, hori- over the horizon type of uh, issues and risks that they might be dealing with? Yeah, look, I mean, I think that like there, there's all kinds of players in this ecosystem. And I think sometimes we oftentimes talk about like the crypto industry or crypto. And I think the reality is like there's a place for centralized cryptocurrency exchanges or the coin bases of the world. Uh, and there's a part for this sort of growing decentralized ecosystem, right? Like you think of the Uniswaps and the Aves. Um, and and we're very much and, and then, then it, the regulatory frameworks are critical. It's so important to have Treasury and SEC and CFTC and the uh and congress involved in these conversations um and, and i think you know look our our role in all of this trm's role is how do we provide the infrastructure right to ensure that there is anti money laundering protections counterterrorism financing protections um you know how do we do sanctions in a world in a more and more decentralized world so i think the reality is there's lots of different players in this ecosystem and we really all have to work together cross border um, to build a safer financial system. And um, I don't know, it's what gets me out of bed in the morning, to be honest with you. Like, I, I'm so excited about the prospect of this technology. I pinch myself that I get to like be in a space where we are sort of like to all these questions, right? Like that we are kind of building something new potentially here and that we have some voice in that process. Um, and, and, and we'll see. I do think ultimately these qualities of blockchains are going to allow better regulation, smarter regulation, faster regulation. I think there is a learning curve. I think we're in the sort of ugly afterbirth stage of a new economy to some extent. And that's when you see some of the events of the last few weeks. Um, But I think we're moving. I I think we ultimately be moving in the right direction. Well, Ari, you've certainly left us and our listeners with a lot to think about. Uh, I do want to thank you for joining us today. We very much appreciate your insights and analyses on what is a very important issue. So again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you both so much for having me. Really appreciate the time.